Hello, wonderful listeners of Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. It's November, which means that in the US, we're celebrating Thanksgiving at the end of the month. It's a season to express our gratitude, and a great way to express gratitude is to pay it forward. And this is why I have chosen to support a wonderful initiative by Will Reynolds, a leader that you will hear from in the month of December, and somebody who in his life has actually shown and walked the walk of paying things forward. I am supporting his initiative two ways. First of all, I have made a donation, And second, I'm going to turn the microphone over to him to tell you what he's doing. After you hear that, I'm going to quickly come back and tell you where you can make a donation to support it. Howdy, friends. I'm Will Reynolds, and I'm sleeping outside on November 19th to raise awareness, but also to raise a boatload of money for homeless youth in the city of Philadelphia. And the reason why this is important to me is we have a cutoff date. When it's your 18th birthday, you're technically an adult. So that means like if you're 17 years old and 364 days, we have support systems for those youth. If you're one day later, there's a lot fewer resources and we throw those youth into adult homeless facilities with a lot less government support. And that is why I'm sleeping outside because the Covenant House, for whom I've been sleeping outside for 12 years to raise money for homeless youth in our city, they focus specifically on that 18 to 22-year-old youth who's probably still more like a kid than they are like an adult. And now they just don't have as many resources. So that's why I'm sleeping out. Would appreciate your support. Thanks so much. As you can tell, it's a wonderful cause. Let me just share what resonated with me on this and why I chose it as something to support this month. The first thing is the fact that it is local to his own community. The second thing is that he's actually doing an action that puts him on the same level as the people that he's helping. And so it shows a tremendous amount of empathy. Third and final is the fact that, as you have heard, he's been doing this for 12 or 13 years, which shows a tremendous amount of commitment and consistency. So if you want to help to donate, go to bit.ly backslash helpwill1122, spelled B-I-T dot L-Y backslash H-E-L-P-W-I-L-1122. Yes, Will's name is spelled with only one L. So once again, it will be H-E-L-P-W-I-L-1122. Thank you so much. Any donation helps. So the laser basically stimulates the gut bacteria. The gut bacteria makes more metabolites, and we get into the names. It's all organic chemistry. But that encourages the production of dopamine, both in the peripheral nervous system, which is outside of the brain and spinal cord, as well as inside the brain and spinal cord. So you're making more natural dopamine. In addition to that, it's stimulating energy, in the cells. So the Parkinson's patient who suffer from fatigue, drowsiness, often sleeping during the day, they feel more energized and greater mental acuity. The patients are going from sleeping half the day, balance issues, tremor to 20, 30, 40, even 50 to 60% improved. Welcome, I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, 
we tackled the tough topic of burnout with my friend Jim Young. He shared how experiencing burnout himself led him to leave his job as president of an IT services company and make a drastic career change. Our guest today went through a similarly dramatic shift. When Markman left a very successful career in investment banking to enroll in medical school in his mid-40s. That shift and his passion for neuroscience then led him to start Symbix Biome, a company that is pioneering a new application of medical-grade lasers to treat chronic pain, fibromyalgia, and Parkinson's disease. It's an application that brings a significant improvement in the quality of life of the patients, and it is a fantastic application. Wayne is an old friend, and he's a very direct and genuine person, so there is no posturing in this conversation. You will hear a very candid and frank retelling of his story, the choices that he made, and how he thinks about leading, success, and life priorities. We also spend a good chunk of time talking about the science that is driving his company and why it is revolutionary. It's a fascinating and colorful conversation, and I am sure that you will enjoy it. Wayne, it's great to have you here. I'm going to start with something that's going to freak you out a little bit. <laughs> you and I have known each other for 30 years. Wow. We met... In April, you were the first person who interviewed me at Lehman when I joined Lehman. And about exactly 30 years ago, you were trying to convince me to join the Industrial and LBO group at Lehman, which I did. So we worked together. We went to business school together. We were together in the HBS soccer club. A successful club, I might, I might add. We, we won the international MBA tournament in 1995. Yeah, exactly. And you were like one of the presidents and certainly one of the two columns of our defense. <laughs> I like to have people who are my friends here, but you're actually here because you've had a quite extraordinary life, uh, certainly a life that really fits what we talk about in this uh, podcast. So tell my listeners what you're doing now, and then maybe we can go back into the journey and a couple of the turns that you took along the way. Well, it's been a long time, and, and you're one of my favorite people from that part of my life. And, and that part of my life was a pretty tumultuous time. We're talking about the infamous Lehman Brothers, and I think it's well documented, uh, all the nonsense that ensued, and, and that didn't end very well. But that deeply affected my approach to life and business. And then even prior to that, I'm sure you're going to ask me. So what I currently am doing is at the grand old age of 53, I founded a medtech business in Australia to commercialize laser therapy, medical lasers for Parkinson's disease. And this was based on at the time, research out of the University of Sydney Medical School, where we found through mouse experiments, you could induce Parkinson's disease in mice. You gave them rigidity, tremor, balance issues, and all sorts of nervous system deficits. And with the laser light shone on their abdomen, you could restore those skills, which is quite a remarkable discovery. Now, I wasn't part of the original scientific founding team. These were a bunch of PhDs, researchers, and I was introduced to them. And we founded a business, and I'm the CEO, and we've raised several million dollars in funding. And now we're selling these therapies in almost 60 countries 
in discussions with the FDA for US approval. We have approvals, regulatory approval, all through Europe, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, UK. So I currently run a startup and we're growing tenfold over last year, tenfold over the year before, about to do a series B round and you know, I never thought I'd be a CEO of a business. So I, I'm not really a CEO of a mature, steady state business. I'm very much a startup CEO. You know, being Australian, uh, we're pretty irreverent. So we can talk about that as well, because I think culture has a lot to do with my style and, and what we do every day here at Symbix. If somebody had told you seven or eight years ago that you were going to go on and start a business and be a CEO, what would your answer have been? I would have said you're full of shit. I went back to medical school at the age of 43, 44. I did my undergraduate medical science degree here in Sydney. I always wanted to do something in, in science. I loved human biology, human neurophysiology, how the brain worked. And for a variety of reasons, I never pursued that professionally. I went to the U.S. to play competitive college sports. I didn't really have any time to do any of those hard science subjects with lab commitments. I, I just did what was the easiest path through on a scholarship, which was finance. I was good at numbers, and that was just the, the, the least demanding on my time. And it was a practical solution. I, I didn't have the time to commit to sports full-time and do a, a pre-med path, go to med school. So I just did what I could to afford to go to college. And along the way, I sort of lost kind of where I wanted to head. You know, quickly then, I, I was an investment banker for several years, went to business school, went back into investment banking, and then had sort of a meltdown, you know, a, a midlife crisis, mid-40s. Like, wh why am I here? What am I doing? I hate what I do. I couldn't see where I wanted to go, and I think that's the first red flag. If you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. And I I mean, I guess I'm really lucky. My savior was my wife, Sally, who we met at business school, and you know her, and she's an MBA and Boston Consulting Group background, became CEO of a 60,000-person organization in Australia, turned around a business, a separate business, $1.15 stock price went to 10 bucks did very well there. And she's in my camp. She's my biggest fan and also my biggest critic. She, she kept me really honest and on the straight and narrow and pushed me and pushed me. And the problem with being six foot six and having a deep voice is that no one pushes you. No one tests you. No one gives you any feedback that's truthful. And I think everyone needs truthful feedback. And because of her, I plucked up the courage to say, right, I hate this. I hate what I'm doing. I, there is absolutely no soul food here. Go do what you love because your your time is running. The clock's ticking. And at the end of the day, you you know, my philosophy is you have to answer why you're here. I have a very strong sense of needing to answer why I'm here, what I'm doing, and what my legacy is going to be. That sounds fatalistic, but I, I have a very strong sense of that. Um, and that supersedes money. It supersedes position, power, influence. None of that really matters at the end of the day. And I think Steve Jobs summed it up well in his last recorded discussion. Now, I wasn't a fan of Steve Jobs as a human being. I don't subscribe to the, the person has money, therefore they are successful. Uh, that's not a model that I 
tailor my life after. But he did say one thing, which is when you're on your deathbed, the billions are no more than the hundreds and you can't eat more than one meal and you can't wear more than one set of clothes. Um, so, so what is it all for? So then I decided to go back to university. I retrained and loved. I ate it up, consumed it. I, I found my passion and it was neuroscience. And I didn't go there with a view to training to found a company to treat people with a movement disorder. But when you're in an area that you love, all these possibilities start to present themselves. And I was able to recognize it because of the training and because of my passion. I recognized there was a technology that was worth pursuing. And so I'm really proud, not of a CEO title. I mean, that's nonsense. It's here today, gone tomorrow. I'm, I'm a startup CEO. I mean, I'm not equipped to grow this to a listing, nor am I interested in it. But I did have the passion to explore and push and push the science and develop devices and get the regulatory approval. And if you're the most passionate person in the room, you can do a, a heck of a lot. And that's kind of a quick summary of, of how we got to Symbix. Okay. But I want to talk about some of the stops along the way. So you mentioned that you realized that you hated what you were doing at about 44 but you were actually really good at what you were doing. You had a very successful career in investment banking. So what role does the fact that you are actually very good at what you were doing play into maybe taking it a little longer to come to the realization that that's not what you wanted to do? It's a great question, actually. I thought about this a lot, actually. It's a, it's a great question. Can I just take one step back? I grew up in South Africa. Okay, during apartheid. I haven't been back in 35 years because I have a deep dislike for the country, the white culture, and the, the institutions that I grew up around. Now, it's a different country today, and I know it's completely – I'd be a foreign, I'd be a tourist there. And it, things are no longer the way they are. But I, it is so deeply ingrained in my psyche, a deep mistrust for um, leadership, for hierarchy, for institutions. It, it almost turned me into an anarchist. When somebody tells me, go left, I go right just because it's not left. And this is one of my failures. This is one of the things I have to manage. It's, it's, I think it's a maturity issue. And my, my wife and my kids keep me honest. If, if someone says to me, you can't do that, I say, fuck you, I can do that. And I'll do it just because they say you can't do it. So then I go to investment banking. And, you know, I had to fund my college. I had to fund my first uh, down payment. I come from a, a very humble family. My dad was a farmer. He didn't have any money. Uh, my mum was a housewife. No, no education, no tertiary education. So I took the highest paying job I could find out of college because I needed to be independent from day one. I didn't have an apartment to go and couch surf in or that belonged to a relative. Um, I had to basically take my first bonus and get an apartment. And that was the, the money they gave you in the summer before you started. So I had no money. So that played heavily into my into my decision to go to investment banking because what pays the most out of college back in the early 90s 
investment banking and I was good with numbers. But I got to investment banking and yeah, I was very good at it, but I had uh, many personality conflicts with senior bankers. If I got a piece of work on a Friday afternoon that I thought was a waste of time, I told them, oh, you know, this is a piece of shit. You haven't thought through this. I'm not doing it. So I, it wasn't always a successful, smooth path. But what I did was I found the most interesting group within investment banking. And I don't know if you remember, I eventually moved into Latin American coverage and I spent all my time in Venezuela and Argentina and Brazil um, because I, you know, I, I had more freedom doing that. Now, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it. And I tell my kids this every day. Just my, my younger son is... Uh, extremely numerate. He was considering, he's in university now doing computer science and he's moving over to a music major. And he used to talk about quantitative trading. And I thought that was a great career path for a kid, quantitative. And then I realized actually, you know, and he convinced me, he says, dad, I've got to switch to music because I love music. I, I lose track of time when I'm producing music. And my first reaction is, oh, my God, I mean, you, you, this quantitative trading is actually a serious career. Music, mate, you know, what are you thinking? And I realized just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it. So, yeah, I was good at investment banking. I ruffled a lot of feathers. I had a very cavalier attitude, but I could get the work done. And that, at the end of the day, was valued. It didn't matter how you did it, as long as you got that presentation with the numbers correct, produced in a book in the managing director's hand. But I probably stayed too long because I got promoted really quickly. I earned really good money. I was always at the top of the bonus pool for my year. And I stopped somewhere along the line asking myself the hard questions, which I think you have to ask yourself all the time. And if you're not asking yourself these questions, you're going to hit a point in life where you forget where you're going. And it took me probably an extra 10 years, which is why I had my little midlife crisis in my 40s and not my 30s. Much more painful when you're in your 40s and you have a family. Less painful when you're young and single and, you know, you only have yourself to look after. So, so it's a long answer to your question, but I did stay too long because I was really good at it. And affirmation is intoxicating, right? People tell you you're fantastic. You know, we're all human beings and it feels good. So yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yep. I'll take that and I'll come back for more. Had they told me I was pretty crap at it, I probably would have left 10 years before. If somebody is listening to this and they're like, well, I'm really good at this, but I'm not really sure that this is the right path. What are some of the questions they should ask themselves or what are some of the red flags? Let's talk about the red flags. If you're clock watching, that's a big red flag. If you're bored, right, that's a big red flag. If you are paralyzed by fear, you don't have enough confidence. You don't think you can quite do it for whatever reason it is. And we all have these internal biases. That's a red flag. If you cannot answer the question where I'm aiming to go to. What is the end goal? Where am I trying to get to? 
that's a big red flag. Now, that's okay in your 20s, I think. And I, again, you know, the, all these paradigms and, you know, ways of doing things have changed. The whole the world's changing and it, it always has and it always will evolve. And you could, you could sit there in a small soundproof booth and be in your computer all day and actually earn a really great living where you couldn't in our, in, when we were that age. But if you're not nourishing your soul, so go back to investment banking. Even though I was good at what I did, I was never the expert in the room. I was always the mediator. I was always the person to pull it all together. But I had a lot of respect for the product expert who came in and structured the equity security that was appropriate for the client. They were the thought leader in the room. I was just the, the, the team manager. I always had to defer to that person because they really knew their shit. And I, I respected that. I'm going to challenge you on that one because I think that especially in an environment like investment banking, but in many environments, the skills of being the mediator, the person who pulls it all together, that is the skill that ultimately makes the difference between things happening and not happening. And I think that is a very, very underestimated skill in work because it's not tangible. It's not visible. Sure. You know, call it the X factor whatever you want to call it it is but we're all we're all different and we're all driven by different things i have an innate desire to be the person who sets the vision and moves the room in a different direction and that's what i do well and that's what i do at simbix because i'm the only person in the room who understands the neuroscience who understands the regulatory framework who understands every chunk or, or piece of that manufacturing chain and who understands all the numbers and i can move the room put a vision up on the board and say this is where we're going and I don't want to be the person who comes along any longer, who greases the, the wheels and who just keeps the engine moving in that direction. I want to move the direction. I want to change the direction. And you can't do that unless you are passionate about what you do. Now, if you're not passionate or driven by having that sort of an impact, well, then it opens up the possibilities and the different roles and what, how you manage your career. But there are certain types of people that I think need to be out in front. And I'm one of those people. I don't manage from the back. I manage from the front. And that's a problem as well, because I leave a lot of mess behind me and, and I'm not very good at cleaning up the mess. So I'm going to ask you a question around that. When did you gain a clean understanding of the fact that what you wanted to be was being in front of the room, you know, being the person that makes a move? Because what you just articulated right now, it's a very clear sense of what you want for yourself and where you want to be. Well, can I tell you, it took me 53 years to do it. I didn't really realize that for 53 years. So I realized that when I finally reached that point. And what I'm now uh, doing is looking back with the benefit of two years of hindsight and saying, this is a much better role for me than the previous roles. So I'm not a great visionary, Dino. Uh, I didn't know until I got there. So what I did know was that I found an area that I just loved being in. And I, th I think, I mean, we t I tell my kids all the time, do what you love because then you will love what you do. 
and it's not very Gen X, right? Well, it is actually more Gen X. It's not boomer mentality, which are our parents. They, they're certainly not like that. So I was always told, you know, get an accounting degree because you have something to fall back on. I'd rather kill myself, honestly. Life is not worth living. Give me 50 years in neuroscience than, than you know, two years in accounting. So I didn't realize it until I was there, until I had arrived, and it was a process. So, you know, talk about business cliches, I hate process. But anyway, it was a process. That was a process. And the process was I was in an area I loved. I lost track of time. I read deeper, wider than anyone else. I was able to cover all these different areas, and all of a sudden I had clarity on where the opportunity was, the commercial opportunity. And then it was, right, scientists, get out of my way. You either run next to me as fast or I'm going to run over you and we're going in this direction. And I think investors found that compelling. I was the guy that they were going to back to haul themselves over coals to get this business off the ground. And you need someone like that in a startup. I have never seen a startup without that one individual who is prepared to roll their sleeves up and crawl over rocks. There's a lot in how you got to that point, but I want to take you back just for one more moment. And it is the moment that, you know, when you had your crisis and, and you and I have a direct conversations around our, both our crisis. So this is fairly familiar to me, but the moment you made the move, to leave investment banking as a very successful managing director in a place that probably many people would have wanted to be and then make that transition. What were the challenges and what did it take to overcome them? Honestly, Dina, I had the support of Sally. I remember calling her from the university admission office and I said to her, you know, I'm here. I'm about to sign up for a full course load shouldn't I do two? Because then I could just continue doing some consulting work. And, and she got really mad with me on the phone. She's like, fucking sign up. Do it. Your life is moving. Do it. Be a full-time student. I support you. Do it. So if you have that sort of support, I think everything else just falls into place. Yes, we were fortunate and we had enough money. I mean, that's an obvious issue, right? You've got three little kids at the time and you've got a home and Sydney's an expensive city. Can you actually financially do this? And Sally was running a big business. It was actually easy. I became Mr. Mum on a university schedule and I looked after the kids for seven years. So it was really the easiest decision I've ever made once I allowed myself to make that decision. I think I got to the point where the decision was really easy. It was the last five years before that, the previous, the preceding five years that were tough because, you know, yes, you've got this position and yes, that's what you are. That's what you do. It's what you know. Um, I didn't have a vision of where I wanted to be, but I knew what I enjoyed doing. And so there was a little bit of a, you know, taking a, a bit of a leap, but other people have taken much bigger leaps. It wasn't the bravest leap I've ever taken. It was quite easy. I felt so shitty in my current role and personally that it was almost like relief. It was vindication. The day that I took my tie off and literally chucked it in the bin and never wore a tie again, I haven't worn a tie for 10 years. 
I refuse to wear a, a tie even when I go to a formal, even a bow tie. Uh, that, that's the anarchist in me. I, you know, I just, I just want to be different. I want to go in a different direction. Uh, it was an easy decision. That's fabulous. If I remember correctly, when you finished medical school, you actually practiced as a physician. I changed over to chiropractic medicine because I didn't see myself fitting in and towing the line in a residency. I realized I was I was going to be 48 and working for a 25-year-old young doctor, and that wasn't going to end well. So I, I needed to change tack at the end, and I then did two and a half years of chiropractic and qualified and then had my own clinic and practiced and, you know, for uh, a year and a half, saw patients every day, patients with musculoskeletal pain, disc-related issues, sciatica, uh, neck issues, torticollis, all sorts of things. And I loved what I did, but I needed more. That was, that was my transition. I always knew that I needed more, but that was a cave for them because I had learned this whole new vocabulary. And I was reading really widely in neuroscience and I was looking for therapies and just opened. I was like a sponge. I was, you know, education, they say, is wasted on the young. I'm not sure I believe that, but man, oh man, the way I approached education as a mature age student was I was the annoying older guy in the front row. I had prepared for every lecture and I asked every question. I interrupted lectures with a thousand people and people looked at me with horror. And I was like, I'm paying 150 bucks for this hour. You know, I'm the customer, you're the service provider, answer my question. Now, I sound like a bit of an arrogant prick, but I took as much as I could. You know, if, if you're prepared to invest in anything, you take more out of it than the person is not. What you're bringing up is absolutely true. I've seen Susan went to music school, you know, when I was in business school, like dropped out of her regular career and was the older student in music school. And I think that when you are going to music school and you're older, you have a different appreciation. Number one, for the fact that you're lucky enough to be in school. And number two, it's not a simple decision to go back to school when you're older to give up a paying career or whatever for a certain amount of time. And I think that you want to make the most of it, which is what you just spoke to. So as you think about the all these experiences and all, you know, now you're CEO of your company, I think you've, you, you've spoken about some of the type of leader that you want to be or that, that you are. But when was the moment throughout your career when you started thinking about, okay, this is how I want to lead. This is how I want to manage people. And what are sort of some of like the, the key principles that you use when you manage and lead people? So my training, you could probably relate to this, even I'm not sure how you would characterize or frame your, your style. My training was deeply, deeply influenced by the environment in which I grew up. It was a, an environment where there were no processes, no systems. You, you basically, uh, if you were talented, you rose to the top. You were paid as a percentage of what you earned. It was an absolute meritocracy. There was, there was no regard for professional development. And now that I think of it, I mean, the expense of that revolving door of people that you have to train and then fire and then train and then uh, retrench and then train and then they resign. 
it, I mean, it's just really not the way to run a business. So I don't know who, maybe Goldman Sachs got it right. I mean, they are, they are actually one of the only investment banks where you've created tremendous shareholder wealth if you were an investor. But the other investment banks, I don't, I don't think there is one. Uh, as a shareholder, you, you really were behind everyone, including the employees. You were the last in the pecking order. Uh, there was nothing that – so not much. I learned what not to do. And that's not a really good basis for managing or setting your own principles and your own philosophy of management, what not to do, because it doesn't teach you what you need to do. So then I go to business school, and then business school doesn't teach you how to run a business. I mean, for goodness sake, it teaches you analytical skills, right? And if you were an investment banker working 100 hours a week, I got to business school, it was like summer camp. You know, I realized very quickly I didn't want to be a Baker Scholar. I wasn't going to hit the screen. I was going to be in that 80%, and I could do very little. I met my wife, had a wonderful time, met great friends, played soccer. I, mean, I slept in. I, I don't think I ever stayed up past 10.30 at night. It was, you know, even the day before midterm exams, it was, it was a breeze. HBS was camp, summer camp. For the listeners who are not familiar with the grading system at Harvard Business School, basically 10% gets a one grade, which is the highest grade. 10% gets a three grade, which is the lowest grade. And then everybody else gets a two grade. And then if you get what Wayne was referring as hitting the screen is if you get many threes, then you get a talk and say, okay, rethink how to do this. But generally... At least in our era, I don't know how it's managed now, but at the time, you know, the worst case scenario, you were sent away from a year and then you came back and normally you graduate. Yeah. Some came back, some some didn't. So as a finance student, the first concept I learned was the importance of cash. Cash is king and return on invested capital. So the return on invested capital was the highest if you were in that middle 80%. And it was the absolute highest if you were at the bottom of that middle 80% because it means you did nothing, but you did enough just to get that middle grade. And and that was kind of where I aspired to be. And I was so I was so exhausted after my banking experience. If I got a, a one, which I did in a few classes, I had worked way too hard. It was just not a good use of time because that could have been time well spent at Harvard Square. Anyway, so that's kind of that analogy. I'm laughing because actually I have a Harvard professor scheduled to interview in a couple of weeks. It's pretty funny. I hope she doesn't listen to this episode before talking to me. (laughs) We were talking about leadership. And actually, you know, you said I started forming my leadership style by figuring out what not to do. What's interesting to me is that that answer if you listen to some of the conversations i've had with my other guests is one of the most common right we start by saying like i don't want to do this i don't want to do that so as you think about now how you lead your team yeah okay so i'm a massive fan of the do what you're good at and leave what you're not good at to other people who are good at it so this whole thing you know Johnny really needs to work on his uh, weaknesses. And here are the weaknesses. And let's focus your annual review or your semi-annual review on your weaknesses. I think that's a crock of shit, personally, because I am never going to be good at my weaknesses. At best, I'm going to be moderately better. There will always be relative weaknesses. And so my style of management is I know what I'm really good at. 
I'm really good at selling. I'm really good at connecting research teams around the world, getting third-party funding and getting new trials funded. I am really good at articulating where the technology and our business is going to. I'm really bad at documenting, developing processes so that the next person and the next person gets a bit of a, a cheat sheet and a game plan and they can follow it. So I'm really just not cut out to run a large business. I have no interest in doing that where, you know, you, you're not affecting everyone in the business. You've got people reporting to you and people reporting to them and you have these weekly or monthly meetings. And I have no patience for that. I have no interest in that. So I've told the board, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to hire people who are really good at cleaning up behind me. And that's what I've done. So I have the most incredible operations manager. She's all over the detail. Every little thing that needs to get done, she gets it done. So I value that's a little bit of a, an investment banking mentality, I'm, a, I'm embarrassed to say. But she will clean up everything behind me. Then there's a marketing team. They make it happen. And they will not only develop the marketing copy, they will manage all of our digital channels. They'll send me just before some, something is released so that I can just check the accuracy of the neuroscience. And I approve it. They place the advertising. They follow the response. They can tell me the bounce rate and the click-through and the conversion rate. And I get it inherently, but I'm not interested in diving into the detail. I need people who complete things. So, you know, I've made a few mistakes. I've hired people who want to advise me. I don't need advice, I, <laughs> which is possibly a shortcoming. But I get enough advice from my board. But I know where I want to go. I am so certain of where in the next two years this business needs to go. I need people to execute. I need people to get it done. And I'm not good at it, so I leave it to people who are. That investment banking culture is full of micromanagers, people who are obsessive-compulsive, who will stand there behind your back and look over your shoulder, tell you mid-sentence to do this, do that. And you're like, just get off my back. That's one thing I don't do. I give people clear instruction and then leave them. And they either swim or they sink. How do you think about setting the tone and the culture in the company? Because that's actually like another, you know, part as the CEO and the leader. I'm deeply, deeply influenced by my long, long life in competitive team sports. So it was one of the things that really saved me, just my, my, my own happiness, my, just my mental health. I was always part of a very competitive, if not successful sporting team and whether that was you know state level basketball or national level soccer football the real the real football you know ac milan football i know i know that's your that's your team and the yankees but it's ac milan i was deeply influenced by my experiences on competitive teams i live and die by the team i absolutely hate the word I, even though I've, I've said it a few times this morning. There is we, there is us. And if you don't subscribe to that, you can't be on our team. So we get a lot done because we're heading in the same direction. Now, I also have very strong characters in my team, so they challenge me. They challenge me a lot. I don't want same thinkers as me, but 
I want people who have conviction. And once we make the decision, however, everyone goes in the same direction. And if you don't go in that direction and we've given everyone a chance, uh, airtime, it's with us or against us. I'm not sure that is a successful recipe for managing large teams, but certainly teams where there are half a dozen direct reports and a couple more junior people, it's workable. That's my style. You know, it's a style that certainly, as you pointed out, in certain cases makes it challenging. But I think that what makes you different from other leaders who tend to be strong and tight in their the way that they want to manage is you actually have several times in the podcast said, I know that there will be a point where the business will outgrow me. Like I know that I want, you know, I'm a startup CEO. You know, you've really clearly identified the environment where who you are works. And I think that what many founders and that where many founders end up getting into trouble is not recognizing where the environment has changed and their style no longer works and they're neither willing to change nor to bring on board somebody with a different style. I think passion and energy and obsessive focus on a goal are not enough longer term to run a business. It's okay to start a business. It's okay to bring investors on. I mean, let's face it, you've got to have something that works, something that's actually a proposition, a commercial proposition that's viable. Passion will not get you there if you're trying to sell rocks to you know, people on the beach um, or snow to Eskimos. It's not Passion won't do it. But if you have something that is actually commercial, passion, tenacity, energy, enthusiasm, conviction go a long way. Uh, how long? I'll tell you in two years' time, but probably two, three years. You bring up a really important point, and I think there's a lot of confusion at times. That, like, you need to be passionate, you need to do what you love, but that's not enough, right? There, there's a couple of conditions, like, you need to have a great product, and you need to have the passion. Yeah, dumb ideas are dumb ideas, right? No matter how good a salesman you are. So, I want to switch a little bit here, because you mentioned, you know, the fact that you need to find a why and a cause, and I think that w- where the science brought you, what your company is commercializing and what you're doing is something that can have a massive impact on the quality of life for many, many people. So I'm going to, I'd like to take just like a few minutes in a very non-scientific way, go through what is the innovation? What are the benefits? Because I know we've had a conversation around this because I do have a dear friend who suffers from Parkinson's. And when you told me sort of what you were doing, it sounded amazing. So let's take a few minutes and talk about that. It's actually the, the area I love to talk about the most. And it's the area that I've had to be most disciplined in because we're doing something that no other medical device company or med tech company in the world has done, which is develop something and directly deal with the patient, which means you've got to explain to the patient, you've got to bring them along that journey, and then you've got to provide wonderful aftercare, after-sale support, after-sale care. And no medical company in the world is providing any after-sale support, certainly not to the end user. And we are approaching this as a business. Uh, and that's quite unusual. I get a lot of flack for it. Because, you know, I talk about customers and lifetime value of the customer and providing amazing customer support. And that's just not heard of in medicine. I mean, customer, what, you know, nothing's customer-centric, nothing's patient-centric. So 
There is a, in terms of the science, it's quite simple. There is a connection between the gut, your abdomen, your digestive tract, and your brain. And it's well-researched now. And it's probably one of the most profound, new, incredibly exciting areas of medicine. Because, you know, global pandemic, we figured out a vaccination, global vaccination, distributed globally. That's one of the most incredible scientific discoveries. The speed at which that was done, amazing, amazing. Just an amazing thing that happened. I don't think people realize how incredible that whole process from beginning to end was, given the way they truncated that time frame. That's one. Two is must be DNA, genetic, you know, slicing, splicing, being able to treat cancers by changing cell DNA or genetic mutations. So gene editing is another incredible area of medicine. The third, I think, I believe the most incredible area of medicine, the third most incredible at the moment is the gut-brain axis. The link between the gut and your brain, and it's bi-directional. We know there's signals going from gut to brain and brain to gut. And we know you can influence brain chemistry by changing the gut. How do you change the gut? You change the microbiome, which are the billions of bacteria and fungi that live in the digestive tract. And we all need them. They're really good ones. They're really bad ones. The, the key is to have them in the right balance. You need the bad ones that could make you sick, and you need the good ones. Why? Because they ferment food in our digestive tract. And that fermentation creates metabolites that you need for optimal health. And some of those metabolites increase dopamine levels in the peripheral and the central nervous system. So in a Parkinson's patient, you've got premature neuron death in the deep cortex of the brain, and it results in a deficit in dopamine production. And dopamine is a critical neurotransmitter that, amongst other things, facilitates normal movement, motor skills. So that's why you see a Parkinson's person lose control over just normal motor function, small, fine motor and gross motor skills, walking, balance, handwriting, threading. If we can metabolize more dopamine, you can change the neurochemistry in the brain and close the deficit. So there is a best practice. Standard care is a synthetic dopamine tablet that most Parkinson's patients around the world take, and they ingest it. The problem with that is it, most of it becomes active in the abdomen and then doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It doesn't ever get to the brain. So only 1% to 5% of the medication that you ingest goes to the brain. So you're only getting a small benefit from that very, very potent toxic tablet, and it makes most people sick. So most people take medication to counteract the negative effects of the dopamine medication. So it's less than ideal and it's 65 years old. There's been no innovation in the medication. Why? Because it's an older demographic. Developing new drugs are really expensive. So there's no global impetus, no drive, no momentum to develop new drugs for that category of people, unlike the global pandemic, where if people put their mind to it, there's some very bright scientists out there. We could actually solve this, but there is no impetus to do it. So the laser basically stimulates the gut bacteria. The gut bacteria makes more metabolites, and we get into the names. It's all organic chemistry, but that 
encourages the production of dopamine, both in the peripheral nervous system, which is outside of the brain and spinal cord, as well as inside the brain and spinal cord. So you're making more natural dopamine. In addition to that, it's stimulating energy in the cells. So the Parkinson's patient who suffer from fatigue, drowsiness, often sleeping during the day, they feel more energized with and, and greater mental acuity, and a couple of other really strong direct links to the light therapy. So you're basically taking an infrared laser at a very exact set of specifications, shining it on the abdomen using a protocol. It's penetrating the epidermis, the tissue, up to six centimeters, and it's starting a cascade of biochemical events resulting in the stimulation of dopamine uh, centers in the brain. And the patients are going from you know, sleeping half the day, balance issues, tremor, to 20, 30, 40, even 50 to 60% improved. Now, we've got a lot of challenges because it's non-pharmaceutical. The pharmaceutical lobby and the medical lobby is incredibly powerful. Whether you're looking at the US or Europe or Australia, there are best practice, standard care procedures, policies, ways of doing things. If your prescribing physician is the gatekeeper to the Medicare or the Medicaid system, you've got to convince them. So we've just gone around them. We've gone direct to consumer. It's a class one laser. You don't need anyone to refer it, prescribe it. You can use it at home. It's safe. You can't blind anyone. It doesn't heat the tissue. Uh, perfectly safe, really easy to use. And all of a sudden, we're getting better results in the medication that's been around for 65 years. So it's not uncontroversial. I get a lot of criticism, but I'm very clear on why I'm doing this and where we're going. So the, the criticism washes right over me because we see the benefit it's having on all of these patients. Now, the incredible application, though, is beyond Parkinson's. So if you can change the biochemistry in the gut, the biggest cause of chronic disease in the world today is inflammation in the gut. So that's a factor of poor diet high animal fat diet, lack of exercise, ingestion of pollution. So in the wine-growing regions in France, there's the, the highest incidence of Parkinson's in Europe. Golf greenkeepers, disproportionately high number of Parkinson's patients. Vietnam and Gulf War vets, disproportionately high Parkinson's rates. So Parkinson's, only we took 10 people with Parkinson's, only a couple have a genetic predisposition. The majority, we believe now, are environmentally induced. And that's pollution, and that's what we're treating in the gut by reducing the inflammation that that pollution causes. And if you can reduce the gut inflammation, you have less leaky gut. Now, you've heard that term, leaky gut. You know, I've got IBS, irritable bowel, leaky gut. It's actually not psychosomatic. It's a proper physiological condition. It is gut bacteria that is leaked out because of inflammation. Those tight cell junctions in the colon have separated. It's leaked gut bacteria. That gut bacteria is what is causing Alzheimer's dementia, Parkinson's disease, killing the, the, the dopamine cells in the brain, and 
incredibly, even cardiovascular disease, that bacteria is now linked to atherosclerosis because they find traces of that same bacteria in the arteries in the uh, atherosclerosis, which are really inflammatory clumps blocking blood flow. So we've actually found a therapy that, if commercialized properly, can reduce incidence of cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. And then you have to think about all the other autoimmune conditions. We're not there. We don't have trials on all of these conditions. We have trials in Parkinson's, and the results are stunning. Now, we're doing more trials, uh, higher-quality trials, more people, more patients, placebo-controlled, double-blinded, so that the data is coming, but we know it works. So I I know some of these things are highly confidential, but you are working with a few world-class institutions on some of these, right? We're working with Boston University, the, the, the Veterans Hospital, Parkinson's UK. We're going to announce a clinical trial with one of the largest UK universities next year. Parkinson's Ireland, European Parkinson's Association. We're doing a clinical trial over in Adelaide with Flinders University and Parkinson's South Australia. Um, and we're, we've announced a trial in Canada. And we're not there yet, but as soon as Health Canada gives us the trial number, which is effectively the stamp to say, yep, here's your trial number, get going. We believe that's moments away, if not days, hours away. It's been about a year application process with the ethics approval required. We'll get going and we'll get health. Canada and Parkinson's Canada on board. So it's serious. We've been widely recognized as having a legitimate therapy for Parkinson's. It doesn't, it doesn't cure Parkinson's. We can slow it down and we can improve the symptoms. And if our theory is correct, if we can reduce gut inflammation, then we can potentially lower the incidence going forward. That is fantastic. And I think this is a, an excellent point to stop our sort of like business and story of life. And we can move to the more personal questions. The first one is... I thought those were the personal questions. Oh, no. The personal are coming. (laughs) (laughs) You mean they're they're coming? Oh, my God. Do you have a passion or a hobby outside of your work? And what impact has that had on your professional life, if any? I love music. I play the drums and we have music in our family. My wife is a beautiful pianist. My All my kids have played instruments and my youngest is making a career in music. I love, absolutely love documentaries. So as a genre of movie, I mean, you know, they're not really documentaries, rock documentaries, but like, you know, Ray, who was that, Jamie Foxx, Bohemian Rhapsody, Rami Malek. That's just my ultimate all-time favorite 20 minutes of rock history, that Live Aid segment that Queen did. I think I've watched that uh, a thousand. I'm very compulsive. I've watched it about a thousand times. I know, I know every single minute, every second of that 20 minutes. Rocket Man, I just think it's a beautiful story. Such a complex, deep, personal tragedy uh, come, you know, success story. It's wonderful. I, I absolutely love those, those movies. Have you seen the new Elvis movie or even had a chance yet? I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan of Baz Luhrmann. I mean, I, look, I think the Elvis story is actually a tragedy. Not enough was made of the of the fact that he really took a lot of material from the black community and they never were given their dues. 
I mean, he wasn't a particularly great musician, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's a tribute to the director more than it is a tribute to Elvis. I love Tom Hanks in the role, but uh, the whole artistic sort of, it's a real Baz Luhrmann production. I'm not, I'm not a great fan. Respect uh, Jennifer Hudson. Awesome. I mean, Aretha Franklin's story, unbelievable. Loved, loved, loved her music and some of those recording sessions. The, the musicality there is just pure genius. Fabulous. And I'm, I'm going to, so it's interesting because you basically jumped over and answered my third question, which was food for the body, food for the soul, like, you know, either a recipe or a piece of art or a movie, et cetera, that inspires you. So I know I cheated. I jumped ahead and saw the questions and I thought I'd skip the one you asked and go to the one I want to answer. <laughs> I know. So <laughs> we're going to close with my favorite question, which is what is the either piece of business jargon or cliche that drives you crazy? I mean, so many, you know, leverage your core competencies and synergies and uh, it's all bullshit uh, the one that really makes me mad is it's really complicated that's just bullshit nothing is so fucking complicated if it's complicated it means you don't have clarity of thought and you don't know where you're going there is business is actually easy it's getting people to do what you want them to do that's really hard i guess it goes back to your point about being the uh the glue the master of ceremonies it's nothing is that complicated if it's complicated you don't know what you're asking for or the person has no idea what they're saying so when i hear it's complicated i literally it's a red flag to me at that stop right everyone here is not on the same page it's actually really simple we're trying to make this device for $500 not 600 and there are a couple of levers and this is what we're going to do so why is it that complicated people complicate things Things are not inherently complicated. So that, that drives me mental. The other one is the problem is. I hate hearing the problem is. I, I just don't want to be told the problem and the obstacles. Tell me when it's done. Hence my comments about a startup CEO. <laughs> Wayne, as usual, it was great catching up. Thank you so much for being on the episode. It's been great. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. It's kind of amazing to know that I literally, I have friends and people that I know whose life will be significantly improved by this. You're generous to say that. Thank you. And you're one of my favorite people, Dina. And you, I think you know that. Um, it's my pleasure to do this. You're following the rule that the more I like people, the farther away they move from me. <laughs> you relocated yourself all the way to Australia. Yeah, but I'm in Boston every once in a while and we can still catch up for a beer in the North End. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you know somebody who is affected by Parkinson's disease or by chronic pain, and they may be interested in learning more about what Symbix is doing, send them a copy of the episode. And you can also send them to the Symbix website, which is S-Y-M-B-Y-X-B-I-O-M-E.com. In the notes of the episode on my website, I will also post some links to the research. And if you really like the show, please tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews, like Apple Podcasts, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo. The show website is al4ep.com with the number four. And as I said, you can go there on the episode page and you will find links to the Symbix research. 
You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And on Twitter and Instagram, you can look for at al4edp with the letter D. On Facebook, the show is at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, recorded and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Wayne is a drummer, so in his honor I picked a Susan song that has a nice, funky but laid-back groove. It's called Ten Kinds of Trouble and it's from her album The Hammer and the Art. Get all shook up for this love, love.